Well, it's uh, good to be back. I had the pleasure of the flu. And then it was Dave's turn to preach, and so I've got some fire in my bones this morning, and you're going to have to deal with the consequences. Uh, I think my razor broke during that last couple weeks. Actually, I grow this in commemoration of elk season. If I can't go elk hunting anymore, I'm going to look like it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, where we are continuing the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist. Someone once said that unbelief is the shield of every sin. Think about that. Unbelief is the shield of every sin. That is such a true statement. Anytime you sin, it is an act of unbelief. And unbelief is always there to defend your rebellion. Your way is better than God's. God's way is not as good. Unbelief is always the road that takes you away from God, away from God's blessing. It is a shield that keeps you from the truth. And people tend to be unbelieving, don't they? I mean, people are skeptics. We even have a hard time believing things that we know are true. Things that are just easily understood as true. And many people still believe in evolution. There are no facts that prove evolution is true. None. Every single thing that Darwin said or the tenets of foundation of evolution have all been disproved false. And yet we have many scientists who in the face of overwhelming, irrefutable evidence still believe in evolution. It's a well-known fact that cigarette smoking is bad for your health, that it causes cancer. And emphysema. And there are people all over the world right now dying in hospitals, dying at home. And yet people still pick up cigarettes. They look at that little label that says it's dangerous to your health and causes cancer. And they still smoke. They just refuse to believe that it's actually going to hurt them. And always it's going to hurt the other guy. No, it's the other guy. It's bad for the other guy. And people are by nature unbelievers. They just have a hard time believing things. And even if there's scientific fact, they just can't believe it's true. Right now, if there was an earthquake, you ever heard of earthquakes in California? Right now, if there was an earthquake, maybe a 9.0 on the Richter scale, centered in downtown L.A., Knocks every building, every structure flat in the entire area. Millions of people die. You know what would happen when they interview people around the United States on TV? They'd say the first things out of their mouth is, I can't believe it. It's the same thing they said at 9-11. I just can't believe it. Well, why not? I mean, don't we have a history of this? Don't they say the big one is coming? Hello, the San Andreas Fault hasn't moved. It's still there. And yet when things like this happen, people always just, uh, I just can't believe it. Does not the word of God say that in the last times there will be earthquakes and people won't even believe the word of God? 
you read the papers, you, you look at the news, you just live in the world and you see how men are becoming more greedy, how they're becoming more wicked and, and just, you know, wickedness is increasing. And I have people come to me and say things like, I just can't believe how bad the world is getting. Why not? Have you ever read in your Bible that in the last days, the days in which we live, things will proceed from bad to worse? Isn't that what the word of God says? Why don't you believe that? Well, it's because we have a hard time believing the truth. If I told you today that I was going to show up your house at four o'clock p.m. and I showed up at your house, just like I said, you would you probably wouldn't doubt that. But let me tell you, it is far less likely that I would ever get to your house if I tell you I'm going to be there at four than what God's word says. God has never lied, has never dropped the ball, has never been late, and has always fulfilled his promises. I, on the other hand, have frequently done that. As a matter of fact, some of you know that's true. Some of you have been waiting in my office when Ruth has called me and I've been at the seminary or been somewhere and they say, are you coming for your appointment? And I say, as fast as I can. Or reschedule. Tell them I'm sorry. Uh, sing to them. <laughs> Till I get there. Yeah, I just totally space it. Sometimes, I kid you not, I'm supposed to be somewhere and I have Outlook beeping at me. I have my Palm Pilot beeping at me and I'm so into my work, they just beep and quit beeping and pretty soon I get a call. Where are you? Sure, I am unreliable. God's word is perfectly reliable. If it says something is going to happen, it always happens. And the text we are going to look at this morning is the cure for unbelief. It's the cure for unbelief. So if you have your Bibles and you're there, let me just remind you of the context, because this is significant to understanding what is going on here, to really learn the lessons of the text. In this section, Luke goes back. He goes back farther than any other gospel writer, back before the birth of Christ to the very birth of John the Baptist. He wants to not just go back to the Messiah, but to the forerunner of the Messiah. And so he goes into this whole narrative so we can see how God prepared people to receive the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Zacharias, he is a priest. And as a priest, all the priests were divided up into divisions. And he was of the eighth division, the division of Abijah. And twice a year, a priest's division would be called to serve and operate the temple and do the sacrifices and clean up and do all the duties that had to be done. They would journey from their home. They would come to Jerusalem and they would serve the Lord um, on behalf of the people in the temple. And at that time, there were certain things that were just extra privileged things they could do. One of those things was offering up incense in the morning and the evening. They would have a sacrifice and they would have the incense offering. And it was such a special, special time that if you ever were able to do this, you were considered blessed for life and you were never given another opportunity because, you know, you were already blessed. Let's give somebody else a chance. And so they would cast lots, trusting in the providence of God to pick whomever he wished to perform that specific task. And Zacharias was chosen for that task. It was a very great privilege. 
Now, Zacharias had a wife named Elizabeth. Zacharias was old. His wife was old. And all of their married life, all of her younger years, Elizabeth could never have children. Now she is old. She is old and beyond the age of childbearing, barren in her youth, barren in her old age. She is at an age now where it is impossible for any woman to have children. Her hope of maybe having a baby someday is futile. But God, by sovereign decree, chooses Zacharias and Elizabeth, the most unlikely couple, to be the parents of the forerunner of the very Messiah himself. And it is during the days of Zacharias's service that he is chosen to burn incense before the Lord. And what is happening is, is at the time of the morning and evening sacrifice, all the people have gathered around the temple mount, which is a very large, flat area. There is the outer court and then the inner court. And then there is the temple itself with the holy place and the holy of holies. And while the people are all there, some standing, some kneeling, maybe even some prostrate on the ground, they're all praying, murmuring. If you've ever been into a room where a whole bunch of people are praying, you just kind of hear this, you know, rubbling. And you hear that in the temple as people are praying and worshiping God. And the priests enter into the holy place, a group of them. And they get ready and prepare for the incense offering. And then they all withdraw except for Zacharias. He's in there all by himself. He's in the holy place. He's standing before the altar of incense. There's the table of showbread there, the golden candlestick holder and the curtains that enter into the holy of holies. And he sprinkles incense on the altar. And at that very time, the priests who have gone out ring a bell and all the people in the temple become perfectly quiet, perfectly silent. Because they know that the priest, the mediator between them and God is now offering up prayers to the Lord. And then Zacharias starts to pray and the incense burns on the altar and the smoke rises up. It vents out the vents, the windows of the temple and heads up towards heaven like the prayers of the saints. And that's what the incense symbolized. And then something very incredible happens. An angel appears all of a sudden, right there, as he's offering up incense. And like most people who see an angel, he is startled. He is afraid. And the angel says, the normal thing angels say when people are afraid at their appearing, do not be afraid. And Zacharias listens as the angel gives him the most wonderful news that anyone has ever received up until that point on the face of the planet in the history of the world. He says, Zacharias, your prayers have been heard. Zacharias, your wife is going to have a son. Zacharias, God has named your son. Zacharias, your son is going to be great in the very sight of God. Zacharias, your son whose name is John, is going to 
come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Zacharias, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Zacharias, he is going to bring joy to you and joy to many. Because he is going to turn the hearts of the the children to the fathers and the fathers to the, the, the children. And he is going to bring repentance to Israel and make the people ready for the very coming of the Messiah himself. And that is the information that he receives. And Zacharias, being a priest, knowing the Old Testament scriptures, knows that when he says in the spirit and power of Elijah that he is talking about that last part in the Old Testament scriptures that talk about the coming of Elijah to cause repentance in Israel so that God can bless them. He knows that that forerunner is the one that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 40, the voice crying out in the wilderness. He knows that the Messiah is coming. Now, how would you respond? You're in the temple. You're kind of scared. You've never done this before. You've only heard about it. You're in there all by yourself. You have visions and or thoughts of Nadab and Abihu being consumed by fire because they messed up in the presence of the Lord. And you want to do the incense, do the prayer and get out of there. And yet this angel appears and says, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. He's going to be great in the sight of God. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to bring repentance to Israel. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. How would you respond? Well, let's see how Zacharias responds. Look at verse 18 of Luke chapter 1. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am old. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor on me to take away my disgrace among men. From Luke chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, you are confronted with three reasons not to doubt God's word. The first is this. You have no legitimate excuse for doubting God's word. Look at verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Here, Zacharias asks a question which at first seems innocent. How will I know this for certain? But in reality, it's really a refusal to believe the word of God. He's refusing to believe the word of God. Zacharias is looking for proof. 
He is saying, how can I know this for certain? And then he offers up two lame excuses to try and justify his unbelief. The first is, I am old. The second is, my wife is advanced in years. The early church father Chrysostom had it right when he said, quote, Zachariah looked at his age, his gray hair, his body that had lost its strength. He looked at his wife's sterility. He refused to accept on faith what the angel revealed would come to pass. End quote. That's exactly what happened here. Zachariah says, I am presbutes. The word presbutes is the word we get Presbyterian from. The word we get our New Testament word elder from, from the office of elder. He says, I am old. And he, he says it in the emphatic, I am old. He says, my wife, her days literally have gone by her. They've gone forward before her. They're over. He's saying, how can I know for certain that all you have said is going to come true? Because I am an old man. I myself emphatically am an old man. And not only that, Zacharias is quick to defend with his wife's old age. Have you ever offered up a lame excuse to not believe the word of God? I think about it. Recently, we preached a couple of sermons on psychology. Some people just refuse to believe that God's word, the Holy Spirit and his grace are sufficient to deal with all of their spiritual needs. They offer up all kinds of excuses why God's resources are not sufficient for them, even though the scriptures say they are. Uh, But you don't know my mother. You see, well, it's my father. Well, you don't have my job. You know, it's the woman you gave me. No, it's the serpent. He deceived me. People have been doing this forever, refusing to believe God, making excuses, blaming other people. And listen, our excuses are legion. They're like those demons in the Gerizim demoniac that Jesus cast into the swine. And we would do well if like those swine, we just drown all our excuses in the sea and quit making them up. Now, did not Zacharias have the scriptures You ever think of anybody in the Old Testament who was old, older than Albert, and had a child? God appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. Abraham, I am going to bless you, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And guess what? I am going to give you this whole land. And what was... Abraham's response in Genesis 15, 8. How will I know this for certain? And here Zacharias is a very descendant of Abraham doubting that God could do it. A priest who's supposed to know the scriptures, who is supposed to represent the truth to the people, is supposed to believe the word of God. Doubting the very things he knows God has shown to be true. Did he know about the story of Gideon? Sure he did. God says, Gideon, you're going to defeat the Midianites. And Gideon says, how do I know this for certain? Okay, we'll do the fleece thing. We'll make it wet. Well, it's always wet the next day. Can you make it dry next day? Sure, make it dry. 
He gives him proof and then he defeats the Midianites. Did Zacharias know the story of Hezekiah who was sick, who was on his deathbed, who cried out to the Lord and the Lord says, okay, okay, I'll heal you. And he says, how can I know this for certain? Well, you're not going to die. He says, can you make the shadow and the you know, temple steps go backwards? All right. And he didn't die. He knew all of these instances. He knew all of these stories. He knew that from the Old Testament scriptures, God is perfectly faithful to everything he says. And there was never a time in his life when God ever let him down or never a time in the history of the world that God let anybody down or ever broke his word because he is the God who cannot lie and his word is perfect. I want you to know that those Zacharias had excuses. They were lame excuses, just like any excuse that you bring up before God is a lame excuse. There are no excuses. I mean, look at you have even less reason to disbelieve because you have the whole New Testament. You have the Holy Spirit permanently dwelling within you to testify of God's truth. Don't bother offering excuses to God or to other people about why you can't believe the scriptures. They're all lame and worthless. Don't be like many who are quick, quick to believe the world and the wisdom of the world. And yet slow to believe the scriptures. God is always right. History shows this to be true. His word tells us it is true. And when you refuse to believe the scriptures, you are acting in unbelief. And the author of Hebrew tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can never please God while you're doubting him. God wants you to trust in his word more than anything else, more than experience, more than science, more than data, more than surveys. And this is why, because God can and often has and will overturn scientific laws that have never been proven false in order to fulfill his word. He is the God of miracles, the God of impossibilities. So don't make excuses for not trusting and obeying the word of God. It is sin. It is faithlessness. It is an insult to God. It is to indict the perfect character and nature of God. It's to act like God doesn't tell the truth. When he is perfectly true and God hates unbelief. And you can see that the angel didn't like it either. Look at the text again. Look at verse 19. The angel angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. Now just stop there. Now you got to understand there's sarcasm here in the text. The angel appears, tells him all these great things. The first thing out of Zacharias's mouth is, I'm an old man. And he uses the fat emphatic. I am an old man. And so in the Greek here, the angel Gabriel, he shows up and says, I want you to know I am Gabriel. <laughs> and the word Gabriel means champion of God, the champion of God. I myself am the champion of God. You're old. I'm the champion of God. But that's not all he says. He goes on in verse 19. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Just stop there. I want you to know. I, I'm the angel who stands in the very presence of God himself. In the presence of God Almighty. 
That's who I am. You're old. I'm the champion angel who stands in the presence of God. What that means stands in the presence of it means that the angel Gabriel is the personal servant of God. Standing in his presence as a king has servants who stand in his presence to do his bidding. So Gabriel is that angel. And then he goes on to say. To rebuke him a little further. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring this and bring you this good news. And this is the first place that the word good news appears. Uh, the gospel. that The Messiah is coming. You need to understand what he's saying here. I am Gabriel. I am the champion of God. I stand in the very presence of God Almighty. And I have left the throne room of God. The presence of God. I have come down to earth. I have materialized before you, which is a very rare privilege indeed, to tell you the very words of God himself. And you aren't believing? Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and their kind of eyes go sideways? You try and pin them down and they just won't believe you. They don't want to believe the gospel. They don't want to believe in salvation. They want to believe in heaven and hell and judgment, the truth of the word of God. You try and pressure them and they say something like this. Well, you know, I just prove to me the Bible's true. Now, when they say that, I like that. Now, I like that not because I can convince them. I know I can't. I know from the scriptures that there is nothing I can say, no proof I can give them, no reasoning I can, I can conjure up that is going to bring repentance but I like it because I'm an imp. And what I like to do is I like to ask them this. Well, what truth, what evidence are you willing to receive in order for you to repent and submit yourself to Lord Jesus Christ and believe the word of God? That's what I like to ask them. And it's so fun because when, when I ask them that, then they kind of, they, they always hesitate. Because now they're scared because they are afraid to say anything because they don't know me and they don't know what I know. And they're afraid I might bring them evidence. And then they would have to repent. But see, when it comes down to it, I know this. Their problem is that they love their sin. They love their sin more than God. They love darkness rather than light. They know that if God exists and they even let the thought that God exists enter into their mind and they actually believe it so as to obey it, that they are they're in trouble because they have lived their whole life in rebellion against God. And they know God is the king. He's coming in judgment if the scriptures are true and they're in trouble. So instead of just believing it, because it scares them to believe that, they just say, well, I don't believe it. You know, prove to me the Bible's true. And we would expect this of an unbeliever, right? We would expect this of a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins, who is spiritually blind, who loves darkness rather than light, who hates God, who hates God's word, who hates God's people and hates God's rule. 
We would expect that. But would you expect that of a believer? Would you expect that of a representative of the people of God and the word of God? Would you expect it? What about you? What about a believer who truly knows Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior? What about you, if you have really repented of your sins and you've become a new creature, you've been given a new heart, God's put his spirit within you to testify of the truth, what excuse do you have? There is none. No excuse. You see, there are different ways God might reveal himself to someone. You know, God, in a general way, reveals himself through creation and what has been made. I mean, you can go outside and say, hey, there's stuff out there. There's order, there's complexity, there is well-designed by intelligence pretty much everything out there, down to the molecular level, all the way up to the stars and the planets. You can see that God exists in a general way. That's one way. We have our consciences, which kind of accuse us and defend us. Romans tells us that. But it's not enough to tell us specifics about other parts of God's will. Secondly, we have somebody who might come to us and uh, preach the word of God to us. I like what I'm doing right now. I go and study a whole bunch. I get an hour's worth of material. I come and I give it to you. And that is fairly reliable, a little bit more reliable than general creation. But it's only reliable to the degree that I stick to the word of God. So as long as I'm getting my information from the scriptures and bringing it to you, then that is reliable truth. Then there is one more degree more reliable than that. And that is if somebody receives direct revelation from God as a prophet of God and stands up and proclaims a perfect inspired message. That is even more certain. 100% accurate delivery of the truth of God's word. Then there is one more degree greater than that. And that is if God sends a very messenger, an angelic being to you to speak to you face to face to tell you what God wants you to know. Which has only happened a very few times since creation. The only thing greater than that is if God shows up in a theophany or the Shekinah glory, the burning bush, or, you know, Jesus returns to earth. And the question that begs to be asked in this text is, Zacharias, what evidence are you willing to receive? You've got the Old Testament scriptures. You know the perfect record of God. You've seen how God has been faithful in your lifetime. I've sent an angel to you. What more do you need? And the answer is nothing. He needs to believe. Zacharias does not have an evidence problem. He has a faith problem. That is his problem. He's not short on evidence. He's short on faith. And this is the problem with all unbelievers and ashamedly even believers. God tells us all of these things in his word. And oftentimes we're unbelieving believers. And what an oxymoron. You know, to be a doubting, believing one. To be an unholy, holy one. You know what? That's what the word saint means. We're all saints. If we know Jesus Christ, saints means holy. Well, if you are an unholy, holy one, how is that? How is it that you're an unbelieving believer? 
It's a contradiction of who we are in Christ. And if you're out there and you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Jack, I know that every time I sin, it's really, I'm, I'm not doubting God. I'm not doubting his way is best. I, I'm not doubting that, you know, the scriptures are true and that, that it's always best to do what's right according to the word of God. I, I know I'm doubting. What, what should I do? Let me just give you four things. First, repent and confess the sin of your unbelief. Whenever you sin, you're really saying, God, your way is not as good as my way. Really, unrighteousness is actually better than holiness in this instance. So you need to confess that and repent of it. Secondly, ask God to help your unbelief. Pray to him and say, Lord, help me to be a person of faith. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust your word. Third, get into the scriptures because faith comes from hearing and hearing of the word of Christ. So as you saturate yourself in the word of God and you let it dwell in you richly, it will increase your faith. And fourth, look at verses 20 and 23. Where we come to the fourth thing you can do, which is the second point in our outline of the cure of unbelief. And that is to remember this. Your unbelief has consequences. Look at verse 20. After he says, you know, I'm old and my wife is old. And after he gets the rebuke from the angel, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And guess what? I've been sent specifically to tell you the truth. Verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Here we see for certain that Zacharias's question was not one of innocence, but was of blatant unbelief. The angel says, you have Refuse to believe the word of God. The angel tells Zacharias, okay, okay, you want to know this for certain? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Your speaking days are over. Until these things take place. Now, the judgment could have been a lot worse, right? And we know from verse 62, if you look there. Chapter 1, verse 62 of Luke. This is later on. It says, and speaking of those who are talking to Luke, and they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to, wanted him called. The reason they made signs to him is because he was not only unable to speak, he couldn't even hear. God put him into a silent vacuum. No noise going out, no noise going in. Now, you think, well, you know, it could have been worse. It could have. He could have just struck him dead. But this was a pretty bad judgment. And this is why. Zacharias is in the temple. All the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years. They're all out there worshiping and he's supposed to come out and give them a blessing. 
Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 25, tell us this blessing. We have it on little plaques in some of our houses. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. He was supposed to come up and utter this to the people after he has offered up prayers on behalf of the people and the nation. They're all waiting for him. And they're wondering at his delay in the temple. Why? Usually the priests, after they did the incense, they offered their prayers and they got out of there because they were, they were fearful. You know, they might be struck dead in there like other people in the past. So they get out. Well, he's hanging around in there. That's because the angel's giving him the whip, the verbal whip. Now imagine this or imagine this consequence. You have heard the greatest news that has ever been given anyone since the creation of the world. You have the opportunity to now to come out before the people of God who are all assembled to worship God and to tell them the Messiah is coming and an angel has appeared to you to tell you he is coming and they would all just erupt in incredible praise, giving glory to God. And you have that opportunity. And when you come out, you say, that's it. And then you look at all their mouths as you begin to flail around your trade dead. Talk to them without words. And they be all begin to say things to you. And this is what they say to you. You can't hear them. And you've blown your opportunity to give glory to God because of your sin of unbelief. That is what happens in this text. He comes out and, oh boy, if he could speak, just imagine what he would tell them. Imagine what would have happened. But he doesn't. Because he can't. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You will be unable to speak. You will be unable to hear until this child is born. And this seemingly small inconvenience I'm sure tormented him the rest of his life think about all that time when he just thought oh man I was such a fool such a fool I mean look at what I did oh oh I wish I could tell him couldn't see quiet he couldn't even hear them speaking to him couldn't even converse with them he couldn't read, read lips he wasn't deaf and dumb before. I imagine when he was standing there before the angel. The angel said, you're going to be unre- you're going to you're not going to be able to speak. He probably said. And he tried to apologize, but nothing came out. And the angel probably sit there and said, cat's got your tongue, huh? <laughs> Psh, disappeared. Game over. Opportunity lost because of unbelief. So he staggers out there. He can't speak. And what a great opportunity he had. And he missed out. And this is what sin does. This is what unbelief does. It steals opportunities for you to give glory to God. That's the consequence of unbelief. You know, when you're cooking on the stove... Why don't you put your hand into the fire? 
Because you remember, you did that when you were three, and it hurt you. When you're cooking, you know, of some cookies, and it's time to take them out, why don't you just reach down there and grab that hot pan? Because you've burnt yourself before when you were 12, and you remember. That was foolish, and so use a hot pan now. Well, how many times do we need to suffer the consequence of sin before we say, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore. And God has always built consequences into every sin. And here the angel gives Zacharias a rebuke and a sign and hope that what was going to be said was true all in one fell swoop. You men, when you are tempted to lust after a woman, do you ever consider the consequences of falling into immorality? You need to do that. You need to think about that. You need to think about how lust and immorality grieves the Holy Spirit, how it blasphemes the name of God. It's fleshly. When you're living in the flesh, you're not walking in the spirit. You're not in a place to receive God's blessing. Think about these things. Sometimes I get so tired of all the trash out there. I sit down and I I meditate on this very thing. Now, what would happen if I fell into immorality? It would bring huge reproach upon the name of Christ. Huge reproach. I would be blaspheming the name of God. I would ruin my witness with unbelievers of the world. I would humiliate my wife and children. It may even lead to divorce, which would cause incredible pain and disgrace for my wife and my children in this church and Christianity as a whole. I would permanently disqualify myself from ministry. All that, all that education, all that study, all the skills would just be all dumped because I just wanted a little bit of pleasure. All the rest of my life, I would know And everyone else would know that I was a hypocrite and I would never be above reproach again, ever. And every day until my dying day, as I worked in the shoe store, this would haunt me. How God had given me all of these gifts, had given me all of this training, had given me all of these opportunities, and I squandered it all on a little bit of pleasure. I would be so foolish. And we're always foolish. You would be foolish if you do the same thing. I would regret until my dying day that for a very drop of pleasure, I traded a whole sea of regret and humiliation and reproach. Don't go there. God gives you ample reasons, no excuses to disbelieve his word. And it doesn't have to be some big sin either. I use that as an example because it scares me. It could be worry. It could be fretting. It could be greed or anger. They're all sins of unbelief to one way or another, but you need to take time and feel the consequences of sin in your own heart and mind. And I hope it scares you. I hope it makes you fearful 
J.C. Ryle commenting on this very text said, quote, let us learn from Zacharias's fault. It is a fault to which God's people in every age have been sadly liable. The stories of Abraham, Isaac and Moses and Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat all show us that a true believer may sometimes be overtaken by unbelief. It is one of the first corruptions which came into man's heart when he fell, when Eve believed the devil rather than God. It is one of the most deep-rooted sins which plagues saints and from which they are never entirely free until they die. Let us pray daily, Lord, increase my faith. Let us not doubt then that when God says a thing, that thing will be fulfilled, end quote. That is exactly right. This leads us to the final two verses. The third point, God's promises come true whether you believe them or not. This is kind of the divine ninner-ninner of the passage. Because what happens is, is not only does Luke paint a very graphic picture of Zacharias, his unbelief, the consequences of his belief, but he leaps into the future nine months takes the very birth of John the Baptist and freights it back into this story just to let us know it came true. It came true, just like the angel said. Look at verse 24. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor on me to take away my disgrace among men. Luke jumps into the future. He wants everyone to know, well, guess what? God is perfectly faithful. Elizabeth became pregnant. God took away her disgrace, just like the angel said. It says she was in seclusion for five months. Commentators go crazy on this. Some people think, well, maybe she stayed in seclusion for five months because she wanted to make sure she you know, looked fully pregnant before she came out. I think she was trying to protect her husband. I mean, what if she went out and said, hey, guess what happened? I'm pregnant. And they would go to Zacharias and go, Zacharias, your wife is pregnant. What do you think about that? (laughs) Oh, how humiliating it would be, not only for Zacharias, but especially for Elizabeth. Who would have to suffer suffer because of the consequences of her sin. And if you are married, you know how this is. Your spouse sins, it hurts you, it hurts your whole family. In the church, it hurts the whole church. And Elizabeth utters pretty much the same thing that Rachel uttered, who after she found out she was pregnant said in Genesis thirty twenty three, God has taken away my reproach. One of the good and yet painful consequences of refusing to believe is that even though you refuse to believe, God rebukes you because he fulfills what he says he's going to do, which is great. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have had that sin in our life, that secret sin. We all have them. And you know which one I'm talking about right now. You see it in your heart. It's that one that you've gone back to over and over again, your beloved sin, the one you feed under the table, the one you cherish. You've crawled back to God and confessed that sin a thousand times, and yet you keep crawling back to that same sin as a dog to its vomit, as a sow to wallow in the mire. 
You refuse to believe that there is better pleasure in holiness, better peace in holiness, better joy in holiness. You just won't believe it. So you keep going back to the vomit and the mire of your sin. And you know what? When we think about that, that's, that, that makes you sick. Think about a dog going back after throwing up and eating up its vomit. It's like sick. That is exactly how God feels. Sick. What are you doing? You got rid of that. Don't lap it up again. Yet God, by his grace, has delivered most of us from the slavery of our sins. If we know Jesus Christ. And after we have been set free from our sins, we need to learn to live apart from those sins, which all have unbelief as their primary ingredient. When you leave here today, you need to remember you have no excuse for not believing the word of God. You need to remember as you leave here today that there are always painful consequences built into every sin and it takes away your ability to give glory to God. And as you leave here today, you need to remember that one of the greatest rebukes to unbelief is when things come true, even though you've doubted. And then you are ashamed because you didn't trust what the word of God said. Let's keep these truths in our mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and we thank you for Zacharias. This is a kind of a bittersweet text as we rejoice in how you prepared the way for Jesus to come to earth. And yet we see how sin has its consequences and how painful they must have been in Zacharias's life and Father, help us to remember that the same God that is in this text is the same God we worship today. And you have given us more reasons to trust you, more perfectly faithful actions according to your word that cannot be doubted, that cannot be denied. Help us not to be unbelieving. Increase our faith. Help us to be saturated in your word. Help us to meditate on the consequences of our sin so that we would keep far from them. And Father, every time your word comes through and every time that we've doubted it before that, may it be a rebuke that changes us. And Father, in the weeks to come, I just pray that we would learn more about you and your character from this narrative. Father, I pray if there are people here who don't know you, who have never really repented of their sins, who are still living in unbelief, who maybe say they believe in you, but have never really acted on it, have never really turned from their wicked way and their unrighteous thoughts and repented and received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, trusting only in his death, burial, and resurrection to save them. I pray that you would grant them the repentance, that right now they would repent, that they would believe, that they would be saved, so that you could receive all the glory and honor and praise. And we know this is your will, so we ask you to do it. In Christ's name, amen.